0: Hear now the very Word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And may the Lord truly bless this reading of his Word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we turn now our attention to this word, help us fight through our own presuppositions, to help us fight through tradition, through the myriad photo I mean not photos, but nativity scenes and movies and paintings that we have seen. Lord, we would actually see this scene as it was. Guide my words towards that end. I pray that we will stick to Scripture and that you will be glorified in the way that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I was preparing uh, for this morning's message, I ran across a painting uh, which I brought for you to see. This is very uncharacteristic of me. I don't normally... Um, use visual aids, but in this particular time, I think it would be important. Now, I know that it's hard for you to see, especially those of you who are on the back row, because I tested it on Friday and I couldn't see it. So let me explain to you a little bit about this particular picture. It's by a German painter named Bernard Plockhorst. And actually, he was quite famous, and he painted many religious scenes. This one is called Tidings of great glory and I'm sorry, tidings of great joy. And it represents the scene that we are studying in our text right now. So I wanted to point a couple of things out uh, as far as this painting is concerned. First of all, notice that the angel is hovering over a group of angels just behind, I'm sorry, a group of shepherds. And just behind the angel in the distance, you can see some sheep In a sheep pen, over in the distance, the other direction, you can see a town, which we assume is Bethlehem, with a star shining upon that uh, uh, town. Now, the shepherds seem startled, but they don't seem to be terrified, um, the angel herself seems to be giving off kind of a luminescence, just a wee bit of a luminescence. Um, but it's, it's really the heavenly host that I want to zoom in on here. Um, I know it's hard to see, but I want you to see the rendition of the heavenly host that is in this picture. Um, a, a group of chubby cherubs, uh, some roly-poly little angels with little wings on their backs. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with this picture, actually everything is wrong with it. Uh, no disrespect to Mr. P- P- Plockhorse. this is actually a very beautifully done, um, sensitive painting, but everything in it, it is wrong. A- and, it, it, and it typifies what I've been trying to get across, that we have to fight past our traditions and everything we've seen about this event in order to actually get what it's saying. First of all, we already know that the angel didn't hover over the shepherds, but stood before them. He's on the ground. Secondly, we know that the sheep wouldn't be in a pen. They're going to be scattered around the the, the countryside, the fields there. Um, Bethlehem, we know that that star is not going to show up for months, if not over a year. Um, We also notice that one of the main things that's wrong is that the major event is missing. It's the Shekinah of God. I mean, it would have completely bleached the the colors out of the landscape. It's the main event that the, that the holy, the glory of God has appeared. But one of the worst things is the angel herself. Can you go back and show the angel? I mean, I'm not going to tell you that the angel wasn't a woman. I I can't tell you that because Scripture really doesn't talk about gender as far as angels are concerned. But normally, when an angel takes human form, uh, it's a man. But this particular woman is very dainty. She's very feminine. If you could see up close, you would see that her hair is coiffured, that she has bangs and a tiara. Okay? Okay? Uh, I don't think that's exactly the way that scripture explains angels. Now let's kind of zoom in and let's take a look at the heavenly host. Look at them. They're hiding behind the woman's dress. Okay? Okay. Uh, uh, they're, they're they're small and, and just real cute, little sweet and sentimental types of angels. Now, here's the point. No Shekinah glory of God, not the powerful, awe-inspiring angel, and a heavenly host that is absolutely nothing like what we're going to see in Scripture. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is is for a purpose. I want you to throw this idea out of your mind. Now, I know that it's been thousands of years of paintings like this, And I know that every time you see a nativity story or a nativity movie or a nativity scene, it has images like this. But I I, I want the text to speak to us. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of of weeks, you know that I've been building up sort of 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 a context to this whole story that is very important. Actually... I was going to go deeper into the context this morning um, and and if you read the notes, you know that I was going to take you through in sort of a flow rather than the bookends that Luke has done, but I've I decided i 'm going to leave that until next week because what we have seen, what Luke has presented to us is the most extraordinary event in human history, and he's done it in a very specific way. He started with these bookends, if you will, of the glory of God. That we are seeing. The first was at the end of the first chapter in that beautiful hymn by Zechariah the father of John the Baptist called the Benedictus and we read this at the very end of that because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace man that is heavy that talks about the fulfillment the consummation of all of redemptive history it is what has God has been been pointing towards through all the covenants ever since Genesis 3:15. So he makes that grandiose statement. Now here at the end, the back book end, we have the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, a theophany shining all around this area, and then an angel appears, shares the good news of Jesus Christ, and tells us that he is both. The Savior, He is the King, and He is God incarnate. And and, and establishes, really defines what the good news is. And then as we're going to see this morning, heaven erupts and overflows and the glory and joy of heaven is expressed in this one particular spot. But in between those two bookends, we had the actual birth of Jesus. The humblest, simplest Scant words, just and, and almost matter-of-factly presented. And then we got to see the ones that Jesus came to save. The shepherds, the lowest and the low as far as the social strata of, of, of Israel was in those days. So we have this truly extraordinary um, juxtaposition of these different parts of the story. Now, of course, we've already talked about why, as far as Jesus was concerned. We've already talked about why, as far as the shepherds were concerned. Now, we're going to see just past the point where the angel, an angel, appears to shepherds and tells them that unto them this day is born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, um, a Savior who is the Christ, the King, and the Lord. And now even as he finishes his words we're going to see the most extraordinary display as this heavenly host appears so let's let's take it word by word because each word in this is really significant look at the 13th verse just the beginning of that verse And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. That word suddenly is quite often used in scripture to talk about the way that God does things. The way that he changes dramatically, exponentially the course of history. It talks about God coming in, in, in an immediacy of that coming, but the aftermath of that is huge for instance Malachi talks about the very event that we are seeing when he says and the Lord you whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon the fledgling church, a game changer as far as the kingdom of heaven was concerned, we read, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. When Saul was struck down on the road to Damascus and the hater and killer of the church turned into the greatest scholar it's ever, Ever known virtually, we read this, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And so, this is a sudden appearance. All of a sudden, everything changes as this heavenly host appears, and suddenly there were with the angel. I like the way the ESV translates this because it uses the actual word that is there were with it's a word that means to be to exist I mean, both the New American Standard, the NIV, appropriately say, appeared. But what it does, it talks about them just being, no floating down from heaven. One second they are not there, and then one second later they are. And this entire group of angels all of a sudden shows up to fill this scene. It is an absolutely incredible event. Now, I also want you to see this. <laughs> we saw the hovering angel, and that's the way you always see angels as hovering. But last week, we noticed that the word that was actually used of the angel who came was not that he appeared, but that he stood before them. And so, in other words, that angel is standing on terra firma. He is before the shepherds at their level. Now, all of a sudden, the heavenly host is going to appear with that angel. They're going to be with that angel so in other words this is not a bunch of angels floating in the sky this is a massive gathering of mighty creatures who are standing upon the earth as the shekinah glory of god shines down upon them brothers and sisters i, I just i, I just want to see if we can kind of absorb that for, for just a minute I mean, how different is that from what we have grown to expect by this? This is the most amazing um, uh, scene. Because, uh, one more word. And suddenly, there were with the angel a multitude. We saw that picture. About four or five little chubby cherubs were in it. Well, that's not what this word means. This word means a crowd, a throng, a great number. When this word is used in the Gospels, it is used to talk about the massive crowds, thousands of people in number who would follow Jesus around. It means a very large number of these angels. We don't know how many there were, but John tells us a little bit about how many angels there are in general because... Um, he, 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 he sees this vision in Revelation. Revelation five, he says this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Those are Hebraisms, and they're used to talk about a number that cannot be counted. In fact, so many of them that they cannot fit into the field of vision of a normal human being. They go on forever, millions upon millions of them. Well, that's how many are in heaven. I don't think that many have populated the landscape. But here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters. And here is what the pictures that you have in your mind of the nativity story just don't show. This is unprecedented in human history. There has never been ever a gathering of the heavenly host of this nature or this size. The entire landscape is covered with them. And they're not roly-poly little chubby cherubs each one of them would strike fear in us. And this is the gathering that has come with the kind of glory of God shining around. Now we have to, I I ask myself a question here. Why? Why would this happen here? And we talked about why it would happen to the shepherds. I'm going to try to get into it again in a little bit. But why wouldn't this be in Bethlehem? That's where the child is. That's where Jesus is. That's where the Son of God is. Wouldn't you think that if you were going to have the most unprecedented show of the glory and power of heaven, not only God's Shekinah, but a massive number, a multitude of angels, wouldn't you think they would gather around the child, Jesus, in Bethlehem? Well, there- I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just asking the question. I don't want you to think that I know because Scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm going to give you my best guess. Okay? Here's my best idea as far as the reason that this was not occurring in Bethlehem. Number one, and we talked about this last week, because the shepherds represent those that Jesus came to save, they represent us, they represent the church, a bunch of sinners. A bunch of losers, really, as Paul says. That's who we are. We're not the rich and famous, not the great and powerful. These are the humble people of the earth. And and now they have a new king and a new savior and a new lord. And and everything changes. But this, these are the people that Jesus came to save. And if you look at it like that. For just a moment and again I'm stretching okay I'm stretching and I know I am but this is the way my mind works if, if you see this as the church and these angels this massive array of angels have come to them it's almost like a welcoming committee if you will it, it, it's almost like heaven is opened up and now there's a stair or there's a gate between this group of losers and the glory of heaven. And, and, and that these angels have come not only to celebrate. That's the main reason they're there. But the, the reason they have come is also to welcome a whole new batch of worshipers. Shepherds and the like. Gentiles. People outside the covenant. People like you and like me. Remember what Jesus told Nathaniel back in the first chapter of John? John. When Nathaniel, uh, you know, was amazed that Jesus knew his name and Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, isn't that kind of like what we've just seen? We, We see heaven opened because these angels have come and Jesus is the bridge between these sinful shepherds and the glory of heaven. And, and it's almost like these angels have come and said, okay, here's, here's what we want to do to you losers. We want to, sh- first of all, show you what the focus of heaven is. And the angel has already shared it with him. And it is Jesus who is Savior and King and Lord. But we also want to show you what the occupation of heaven is. This is what we do. We praise God. And we're also going to show you the objective of heaven. And, and in order to see that, I think we have to get a little bit closer and see who these angels really are, this heavenly host. But before we do that, let's let me continue and, and, and round out the three reasons why I think this happened not in Bethlehem, but out here with these shepherds. First one was because these are the ones that Jesus came to save. Second one is because Jesus didn't want to announce who he was right at the beginning of his life or the beginning of his ministry. We often call that the messianic secret. You remember Jesus almost all through his Galilean ministries strictly told people, don't tell anyone who I am because I don't want them carting me off to Jerusalem and making me king. So he would regularly say that "I, I don't want you to share this. Well, what would have happened if the Shekinah glory came down upon an entire town of Bethlehem? I mean, it it would have been people would have known and it would have been a complete statement that this is the Son of God. Now, As it is, it's done out in the wilderness, in in, in the region that's there. But either the people of Bethlehem aren't paying attention, it's too late, or it was shielded from their eyes in some way. But I think that this is part of the general messianic secret. And that brings up the third point, which is this is... an issue of faith, brothers and sisters. Christianity is a religion founded on faith. You're saved because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. You are righteous, not because you have any righteousness of your own. Righteousness is attributed or credited to you. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You believe in Jesus Christ and it is credited to you as righteousness. And so therefore, your righteousness, your passage into heaven, your salvation is founded and predicated on faith. And it's almost like God has worked into the whole idea of faith many reasons not to believe. And this is certainly one of them. Remember what I said about shepherds? They wouldn't even allow them to testify in court because they were so untrustworthy. They would lie through their teeth if you gave them a couple of denarii. Well, why would God come to shepherds? Nobody's going to pay any attention to them. Nobody's going to believe them because they're totally untrustworthy as far as the local community was concerned. But isn't that the way the kingdom of heaven is? Because... The faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ is not something we generate. It is something that is given to us. And that is one of the things that makes us know we're saved because we have faith. I mean, the same is true at the end of his life as was at the beginning. Because who did God appoint to be the one who would first see Jesus resurrected from the grave? Mary Magdalene, of all people, and and the rest of the women. Mary Magdalene was insane. No one listened to Mary Magdalene because she was absolutely crazy. You, You see, this is the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's all about faith. So that's the reason I think that this scene is occurring with these shepherds and not in Bethlehem. But that brings us to, I think, one of the more important aspects of this, and that's who we're looking at. Who we are witnessing. And suddenly there appeared with the angel. uh, uh, With the angel. There was a heavenly host. Now the word heavenly just tells us where they're from. Heaven has spilled over into this dimension. Heaven cannot contain the joy of the celebration that is going on. And they have spilled over into this. But it's more than that. It's not just, and unfortunately, again, the way we think about this, and I've asked several people, okay, how do you see, do you see these people as a choir? We all see them as a choir, don't we? we, we in fact, we even have this little figurine at home, an angel with a little hymn book in her hand, right? Singing songs, singing the praises of God, and that's the way we see them floating up in sort of a luminescence and singing this song. Well, their choir... But a different kind of choir. Not the kind of choir that you're thinking about. And and that centers around the meaning of the word host. The meaning the, the word in Greek is part of a word group or a word family and many different cognates and uses and, 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 and forms of the word, but all with the same basic root. And, and, and in my research and trying to follow that word up, everywhere I looked, I couldn't find a single instance where it wasn't used in a military fashion. In fact, the actual word that is used here means army. In other words, this is a heavenly army. Army. Not a bunch of roly-poly cherubs. Not a bunch of scared children sneaking out, looking from behind the angel's robe. This is an all-powerful, magnificent, frightening, awe inspiring army of the most monstrous, beautiful, glorious creatures in the universe. And they are now in a multitude around there. So what does it mean? that an army has come upon this. You, you, you see, here, here's what I'm saying. Scripture doesn't tell us in this particular passage what's going on. But if you go around and look and, and you try to find out where this word is used and, and, and how this word is used, especially how it's used of angels, you're going to find that this is not a, a the traditional view. In fact, Revelation 19 puts it this way. And I'm going to give you some homework. I'm not going to read the end of this chapter. You go read it. Okay? But it starts out this way. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... Down towards the end of the chapter, a battle ensues. And there is such carnage. There is such wiping out of the forces of evil that this army comes to wage war against the forces of evil and throw the beast into the lake of fire. Elsewhere, when you read these words, by the way, that's the same, it's not the exact same word, but a derivative of it, same root. Other places you read them, it's always military. There's always a war going on. There's always a battle going on. So what does that mean that these angels have appeared in this place within the Shekinah glory of God? What are they saying? Game on. War begins. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. I know that this is running contrary to what many people believe, and I'm sorry if it destroys your whole view of the nativity. But let me just see if I can give you an illustration of the way I see this. Imagine two kingdoms, if you will. A kingdom of goodness and a kingdom of evil. Abject evil and absolute goodness. Goodness. And the kingdom of evil has pretty much had its way and has been expanding. It has taken over some of the lands of the kingdom that is good. And now many of those who are actually citizens of the good kingdom are held in bondage and slavery in the evil kingdom. And the kingdom of of good has brought its forces together. They now stand at the border between the two kingdoms and they are getting ready to launch the greatest offensive of their history. And as they get ready to do that, their king gives them a a talk and tells them the battle is already won. Victory is assuredly theirs. But some very difficult things have got to occur. In fact, that king himself is going to go underground. He is going to go incognito. He is going to infiltrate that evil kingdom. And there he is going to search out those citizens of the good kingdom who are trapped in slavery and organize them and form a resistance from within that evil kingdom. So we're going to have this massive offensive from the outside and you're going to have these guys fighting from the inside as well. The dangerous, dangerous ploy on the part of the king. And as he leaves to take this on, The army erupts. They erupt with a battle song and a victory song. Because victory is assured. And they already know it. But they love that king. They adore him. And so it is a song of adoration. It is a song of love. But it is a song of victory. Because there's a war going on. The battle is upon them. Once again, I'll turn to Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Brothers and sisters, when the light permeates the darkness, as Zechariah told us at the beginning of this, there were no chapter divisions when this was written. As Zechariah tells us, when the light pierces the darkness, the darkness fights back. And this is not a bunch of roly-poly little angels coming to make us feel good. This is a battle cry and a battle song and it is a victorious song as their king heads upon the dangerous mission that he has taken upon himself to be the deciding factor. That's the child who's been born in a manger, folks. He's the king. Remember, he's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. And so heaven erupts with this, this cry of victory. Now, I realize that. Bucking 2,000 years of artistic uh, tradition. But that's the way I see it. And, and I believe scripture holds that out. Because everywhere you look at the angels and the heavenly hosts, it's military in its nature. There's a fight going on here, brothers and sisters. There's a fight that is getting ready to occur. Well, anyway, let's go on and and let's, let's continue this and see what they're singing. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, this is what we do in heaven. This is what citizens of the kingdom of heaven do. We praise God. We glorify him. We worship him. And the song that they sing is glory to God in the highest. The word for glory in the Greek is a word that you know, even though you don't know that you know it. It's the word doxa. It means glory. And we sing the doxology earlier. But the word doxa means to add weight to it, it means to give honor to. It means to add significance and importance to. But but it's important that we see the way that the angels are stating that. It's, it's not that they're giving glory to God. They're ascribing glory to God. That's a much better word. When you ascribe something... it's not that you're giving it. It, it. It already exists. You're just acknowledging it. You're just bending the knee. You're just honoring it. You can't give God glory. He already has infinite glory. He already is perfect in His glory. You cannot do anything that gives Him glory. You ascribe glory to Him. You recognize His glory. You recognize His honor and His reverence and His significance when you bend the knee and praise Him. And that's what the angels are doing. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God and God alone. This is what we do. We give glory to no one else. He doesn't share glory with anyone. It is God and God alone who gets our glory, who gets our worship, who gets our praise. And, and and that designation, God in the highest, we've already run across that several times in in this nativity story. Back in Mary's Magnificat and, and Zechariah's Benedictus, both of those talked about God most high. It's spatial. The idea is spatial. In other words, and we saw the Hebrew word for this, El Elion, that used to talk about the supreme being, the sublime one, the one above whom there is no other. He's the one we praise. He's the one we glory. And it's almost to me as if the angels have come and told the, angel, the, the shepherds, this is the way we do it in heaven. <laughs> this is our occupation. We're worshipers. That's what we do. And we glorify the one and the only God because he is God most high. Glory. Glory to God in the highest. Well, there's three things that I think we need to bring out about the song of glory that we're, being, that we're seeing or that we are being shown by these angels. First of all, they're revealing to us the focus of the kingdom of heaven. You see, it's not just the king who ha- has come, but it's also the kingdom and the fulfillment, the consummation of all redemptive history. But you see, this is first and foremost, I think, a celebration. And I've said it many times, heaven is spilling over, cannot hold the joy of all of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven because the king has come and he has brought his kingdom. I've told you many times we cannot pinpoint when the kingdom of heaven comes, but if you want to hang your hat on one nail, this would be it. When Jesus is born in the the stable or laid in a manger and God comes down with the Shekinah glory and the angel comes to explain the good news. And now the entire army of heaven comes down in glory and power and sings glory to God in the highest. That's the kingdom of heaven. And it has come to earth, not just in heaven. And this is what we do. This is our focus. The king... His kingdom and the fulfillment, the culmination of all redemptive history. Everything that God has done, His covenants, His promises from Genesis 3.15 on, His prophecies, everything comes into its consummation when Jesus enters space and time. And that's the celebration that is going on when they sing glory to God in the highest. But as I've said earlier, it's not just the celebration, it's the occupation this is what we do. I, I, I love the way that, that um, Jonathan Edwards puts it. I can't remember whether it was in one of his sermons or in one of his essays. But he says, brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, when you're born again, when you are regenerated, your occupation from that moment forward is Christian. Now you may continue to make your living by doing whatever you do, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever it is that you do to put food on the table, you do that. But that's no longer your occupation. Your activity, your occupation is Christian. And I believe these angels are showing us the occupation of heaven, that which we will be involved with for all eternity is the worship and the glorifying and the praising of God Almighty. We have a new occupation. But we also have the objective. The army has come. And they have seen in my, in my mind of seeing it, a thunderous fight song, a thunderous battle song, a thunderous song of victory before the battle even begins. And They have shown us what the objective of the kingdom of heaven is. And that is partially revealed to us in the rest of the verse. So let's go there and then I'll bring that thought together. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's a very difficult verse to translate. There are some textual difficulties there. But the part part about peace that's easy. Because the kind of peace That the angels are talking about here is not what we think of peace. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not health and wealth and prosperity. It's it's not a harmony, a balance in your life. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what the kingdom of heaven promises you. Again, going back to the 12th chapter of Revelation, which, by the way, I'll dip into a little bit in the after church because to me, all of Revelation 12 is an allegory. Of what we are seeing here. But it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Because the devil has been cast down. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. We're not going to have peace on this earth. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. In the world you will have tribulation. But what? Take heart. For I have overcome world. We're on the right side, folks, but it doesn't mean that that's where we're going to find our peace. The kind of peace that the angels are talking about is peace, shalom, peace with God. That enmity that existed between God and man since Genesis 3.15 is reversed. It is eradicated when Jesus hangs on the cross and is raised from the dead. He has come to bring peace between God and man and God and woman. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. And the final statement is is where the difficulty is. The peace part's easy. But, But when he says, and again, I'll read what the ESV says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Unfortunately, some of the older versions of the Greek text It's amazing what a single character will do. Uh, That that word is eudokia or eudokia in the Greek. And if you add an S to it, it changes the meaning. And the King James, when it was written, it, it had the wrong meaning. And it says, and peace on earth, what? Goodwill towards men. You see, the goodwill is all focused amongst the humanity, but that's not what it actually says. The goodwill is God's goodwill. God's the one who is showing the goodwill. I like the way the NIV says it, upon whom his favor rests. One of the scholars that I read and quote to you quite a bit, puts it this way, peace among men whom God has graciously chosen. You see, that's that's what the meaning is. When we talk about upon whom his favor rests or with those who he is pleased, he's only pleased with, with those he's chosen, those who are going to be redeemed and made righteous by the blood of Christ. And so, therefore, this is a statement of God's power in his creation and how he brings that power about. So, brothers and sisters, as we step back from the text, what, what, what are we to make of this? Or what are you to make of this a, a, as, as you head home? Well, there are three things that I think that you need to keep in mind. And I've said them several times, but let me go ahead and repeat them just here at the end so that you hold them in your mind. First and foremost, the angel and the angels have shared with us the focus of the kingdom of heaven. The king has come in Jesus Christ The kingdom of heaven is upon us and redemptive history has come to its consummation and the curse of the fall will be reversed. The most significant event in the history of humanity has suddenly come upon us. That's the first thing, and that is of such great importance. That's the reason for the celebration. That's the reason for the joy. That's the kind of joy that knowing that you are one with God, that you are at peace with God, that you are forgiven and that he sees his son righteousness in you and not your own. That is such glorious peace. That's the first point that we need to remember. The focus of the kingdom of heaven is always on Jesus. It's not on you. It's not on your felt needs. It's not even on evangelism. Although evangelism is very much a part of it, it is on Jesus and the second point, And this is one that the church desperately needs to hear, brothers and sisters. And that is the occupation of the kingdom of heaven. When we gather together, as we are this morning, we don't gather together so that you can feel better, although I hope you do. We don't gather together it's just for evangelism, although that's always a part of what we do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come together for the occupation of what it means to be a Christian, which is to praise God, to give Him the glory, and enjoy Him forever. That's the reason we were made. And that's the reason our worship services are not focused on... The aberration of worship. If you take that, if you look at that heavenly choir, that heavenly army, singing the praises of God and the king of the kingdom, and then you take most evangelical churches in the United States who are holding call them worship services for pagans. To make a pagan feel comfortable so that they can share the gospel with them. Good intent, wrong method altogether. We are here to worship, to glorify The God of heaven. Thirdly, when Jesus came, he came, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. That's his objective. Well, the objective of heaven, the objective of the angels, is the same in a sense, and so is ours. You hear me all the time talk about what it means to be a reformed evangelist. A reformed evangelist lives in the evil kingdom and is engaged in search and rescue. We are looking for those upon whom his favor rests. We are looking upon those who he has pleased, those who he knows are his, that he is called out of the darkness and into his light. We are going to share the good news of Christ. We search and rescue, and that's what we do. That's the objective of the kingdom. But let me just leave you with this. I am so greatly encouraged by this view. This view of the kingdom, this view of this night, of this scene. I'm encouraged because it, 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 it affirms my focus in life. My focus is on Christ. My, 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 my idea about that which I follow that which I dedicate my life to is Christ. And it affirms that that is indeed the focus of the kingdom of heaven. It also affirms the occupation that, that we're about and, 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 and how important it is for us to worship God. But it, it's that third one that I think encourages me the most. Because brothers and sisters, if you're involved with the kingdom of heaven, you're involved with a war. You're involved with the fight. Whether you see it that way or not. Now I know some of you are. I know some of you are fighters. And you bear the scars to prove it. Some of you have got your heads in the ground. Heads in the sand. Acting like there's no war here. And that you're just looking for some nice peaceful way. To live out your days until you go to heaven. But if you're in the battle. If you're in the fray. This means the world to you. It means the world to me. Because guess what? The enemy that I fight is evil to the core. He's wicked. He is hateful. And he despises me, and he despises my Lord. And he will do anything that he can do to subvert me, to cause me to lose my faith, to interject doubt, to cause me to to lose my health, to lose my focus. And if he cannot subvert me, he will attack my family, which he has done. He will find your weakest link and he will attack you there. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, a bunch of roly-poly cherubs don't do anything for me. They don't encourage me. They don't strengthen me. What encourages and strengthens me is a powerful army that is involved with the fight. And they came for that fight and it rages right now all around us whether you choose to accept it or not. And we are in that fight. And we win. That's the glory. We win. Those angels have already sung the victory song. It's just a matter of time. Until we are with him forever. So brothers and sisters. If you. Have a focus that is entirely on Jesus Christ. As king. As kingdom. As the the fulfillment of God's redemption. If your occupation is worship. And if your objective is search and rescue, fight it out with the forces of evil, then, my dear brothers and sisters, you are singing the hymn of the heavenly host. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the picture that you give us in Scripture. It's awesome, it's encouraging, it's strengthening. It allows us to have the strength to go on even when you allow the forces of evil to come against us so strong that we think we're lost in it. Lord, we ask your continued strength. We know that you don't do anything that's not for a reason. But dear Lord, we ask that you would use us towards that end, that you would give us the strength to keep on fighting no matter what happens, no matter what he brings against us or what you allow him to bring against us that we would keep on fighting to the very end. Keep on singing the hymn of the heavenly army. In Christ's name we pray, amen.